Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis on a wet Thursday here in Hong Kong. It's the 14th of September. Welcome to Money Talk, one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. You can find us on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the U.S. inflation rate was stronger than economists expected in August. The annual headline consumer price index accelerated to 3.7% from 3.2% in the prior month, due in part to a big jump in energy costs. On a monthly basis, the CPI picked up to 0.6%, the biggest monthly gain of 2023 so far, after a 0.2% increase in July. And the core inflation reading slowed to 4.3% year-on-year from 4.7% in July. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced Wednesday that Brussels will launch an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles that are distorting the EU market. In her annual address to EU lawmakers, Ms von der Leyen said global markets are now flooded with cheaper Chinese electric cars. But Wang Lutong, Beijing's top official for European affairs, responded by contending that many EU members subsidise their electric vehicle industries. China on Wednesday denied there was any ban on officials purchasing or using foreign phones, including iPhones, after reports claimed Beijing was prohibiting civil servants from using Apple handsets. Foreign Ministry spokesman Mao Ning said China hasn't issued any laws, regulations or policy documents prohibiting the purchase and use of foreign brand smartphones, including the iPhone. But she sowed further confusion when she said that the government attaches great importance to security and that all companies operating in China need to abide by its laws and regulations. She said we've noticed that there have been many media reports about security incidents concerning Apple phones. The remarks left U.S. investors unsure about Apple's status in China. Hong Kong recorded 4.1 million visitors last month, reaching 84% of pre-pandemic levels. The latest monthly figures are a 14% increase from July and pushed the total number of visitors in the first eight months of the year to 20.5 million. Authorities will launch the Night Vibes Hong Kong campaign aimed at boosting tourism today. The campaign comes after Chief Executive John Lee said last week that he demanded plans to boost the city's flagging night economy to be implemented soon. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Gathasia Securities. Also with me to discuss climate change and the impact on Hong Kong is Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange. U.S. equity and bond markets were subdued following Wednesday's inflation data. Tech shares helped lift the S&P 500 and Nasdaq, but the Dow fell for a second day. The Dow lost 70 points, or 0.2%, to 34,576. The S&P 500 was up 0.1% at 4,467. The Nasdaq Composite added a third of a percent to end at 13,814. Shares of Apple lost 1.2% following a 1.7% loss the day before as the company unveiled its new iPhone models. 
Amazon shares hit their highest level since August 2022, advancing 2.6%. British chip designer Arm, which is owned by Japan's SoftBank Group, priced its initial public offering at $52 per share this morning. The highly anticipated IPO was initially indicated at a range of $47 to $51 a share. The higher price will give the company a valuation of $54.5 billion US dollars. High demand has resulted in the stock being more than five times oversubscribed. And trading is set to begin tomorrow on the Nasdaq. It will be the largest IPO in two years and the listing will be watched closely as a barometer for new tech IPOs. The cost for banks to borrow the yuan from each other in Hong Kong surged, making it more expensive for traders to borrow the Chinese currency in the overseas market and send it against the dollar. Yuan's three-month interbank rate in Hong Kong, known as HIBOR, rose to 4.23% on Wednesday. That's the highest since 2018. The offshore yuan gained 0.4% to 7.2711 per dollar. Chinese stocks fell ahead of economic activity data today due for release by the National Bureau of Statistics. Uh, Sorry, that's coming tomorrow. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index gave up early gains to trade 17 points or 0.1% lower at 18,009, near its weakest level in almost three weeks as it struggles to emerge from losses in the prior four sessions. The tech index was down 0.6%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped half a percent to 3,123. The tech-heavy Chinex price index fell 1.1% to approach the 2,000 mark and the lowest level in more than three years. And this morning, futures markets are pointing to a gain of about a third of a percent for the Hang Seng, set to open at about 18,060 when trading gets going. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests this Thursday morning. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Morning. And also with us is James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning to you, James. Uh, Let's start in the US this morning. The US inflation rate stronger than economists expected in August. The annual headline consumer price index accelerated to 3.7% from 3.2% in the prior month. On the monthly basis, it picked up to 0.6%. That's the biggest monthly gain of 2023. Energy prices fed much of the gain, rising 5.6% on the month. That included a 10.6% surge in gasoline. But food prices rose 4.3%. 3%. That's a two-year low. And uh, the core inflation reading, which strips out volatile items like food and fuel, slowed to 4.3% year-on-year from 4.7% in July. It was up 0.3% month-on-month. Um, Andrew, I suppose the big issue here is the Fed. And is it going to ignore these short-term energy spikes when it comes to setting monetary policy uh, next week? What do you think? No, it won't, unless it is absolutely certain that this is just a spike. Actually, we were told that this is the the energy cost going up. But uh, as the data come and go and the events come and go, you're going to get uh, those spikes. Now, both the core and the CPI are downwards. In other words, they point on my charts downwards. But of course, they're not anywhere near the 2% aim of, uh, of, of the Fed. And for this to make any sense, these two numbers have to hit the 2% and stay there for at least six months. And I just can't see how this is going to happen. 
anytime this year, let alone next year. So as I said, I've given up completely on trying to forecast what the Fed is going to do because it's going to be very simple. It is not going to cut interest rates. Mm. It is as simple as that. Now, whether it's going to increase or not, uh, frankly, by at that stage, it should be of utter indifference, all right? Because the markets are really interested on cuts. They are not mm. that much interested on increases because this is this is part of the course. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, f- I feel sorry for for colleagues that uh, are obliged because of the obsession uh, for them to forecast what the Fed is going to do now that inflation <laughs> is going up again or now that inflation has come down again. And uh, the answer to me is is to start looking at sectors that are completely interest rate resistant. It's as simple as that. Otherwise, for the next year, okay, all of us will be running like blind mice around. You know, up, down, down, up, is it or it is not? Okay, and the answer is, is, well, to the extent that anything is certain in this world, the Fed said, we're not letting go until inflation is down and out. Inflation is not down and out. And what, sec- and what sectors would they be that are immune to um, inflation? I'm sorry, I sound, my, my needle has stuck and you feel absolutely right to tell me not to go through this again okay, with, uh, with your clients and your audience. But for me, it is absolutely very, very simple. It is pharmaceuticals because COVID isn't out at all and long COVID is uh, wreaking havoc in the world, but nobody pays any attention to that. The second point is defense. Defense, however immoral it might sound, it's absolutely going gangbusters, okay? Because all countries very quietly are spending a lot more. And defense defense is completely interest rate resistance because the main client is the government itself. Hello? So, you know, really, why, 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 this should, uh, why should it matter? So there is at least two sections, okay, that uh, have got... Uh, um, capacity to flex their arms and their muscles without paying attention all the time to what is happening on interest rates. So James, we're going to follow advice and not not try and predict what the Fed is going to do next week, although I have to say we know what they're going to do. They're going to pause, aren't they? But nevertheless, in in this data, is there anything there that's going to alarm the Fed or do you think they're going to be quite relaxed about what they've seen? Yeah, this month, uh, the, the the newest data, I think they, they're going to be pretty relaxed on what they see because they can have the perfect uh, Goldilocks narrative, uh, hot headline, hot, not, not as hot headline inflation, colder, colder shelter inflation, just right core inflation. So I don't think they're going to do anything. So you, you can see it pretty clearly on the uh, rate, hike, uh, rate hike odds after the uh, CPI number was released. It was basically uh, down to 0% for a 25 bips hike in September and uh, uh, a, a November hike, it, the probability of a November hike was down from 60% to 40% of a 25 bips hike. So I don't think market really pays attention to this uh, as mm-hmm. they did in the uh, period of uh, uh, mid-October to about uh, mid-January of this year. Uh, mid-October of last year to mid-January of this year. I mean, back then, interest rate was uh, the thing that was on everybody's mind. But right after mid-January, we can see the explosion of the the generative AI narrative, and that dominates the U.S. market for about uh, six to seven months. It's running low on fuel for about a month now, uh, especially starting uh, if we're counting uh, uh, August and uh, NASDAQ and some big tech firm names have been down for 10 to uh, some of them have been down for 11%. But uh, 
I think people are starting to pay a little bit more attention to the race right now because the other narrative is uh, kind of fading. And but but still, it's not a big deal. Mm. Um, for the Fed to be happy, though, they have got to ignore this spike in um, in uh, gasoline and energy costs, haven't they? So, do you think it's easy to do that? No, it's not. It's not headline. I think the headline inflation is going to stay uh, quite elevated because of the the pump price. It's not going down anytime soon. And uh, I think core inflation should be still uh, uh, facing some kind of uh, seasonality pressure uh, because. Coming October, we're going to be having a new method of calculating insurance premium into the core inflation. And uh, we're going to probably have a more uh, upside for the uh, service uh, charges for education, for medical services, and for retail services uh, coming to the end of the year. So I think core inflation should uh, should still remain kind of elevated and, and uh, headline inflation as well. So I think I don't think it's time for them to to uh, say okay this is a neutral rate and uh, and of course it's extremely hard for them to cut rate at this point. Mm. Andrew, I know we're not going to predict next week what the Fed is going to do, but we do know what they're going to do. It's it's going to be a pause if futures markets are right. Anyway, they're predicting a ninety six percent chance of a pause. But if it is that, it's going to be what we call a hawkish pause, isn't it? They are going to say very much that they're still on alert. They're not satisfied with where inflation is, and they could raise rates at any time depending upon the the data. So, how do you think uh, markets are, are going to respond to that? So, I mean, today they seem pretty nonplussed about everything first allow me a smirky f- smile on my face when i hear that uh, there is a 96 percent chance of this is happening and the uh, fed forwards are pointing out to a 50 percent chance of something happening which is completely meaningless i mean it <laughs> takes the expression of statistics and it stands on head <laughs> okay the 50 percent is utterly meaningless it tells you absolutely nothing mm. because come monday prices either would have gone up or would have gone down or they would have stayed the same. So they would have gone 50% up or 50% down. But anyway, I leave that aside. That's why particularly when it is a 96% clear certainty that the Fed is not going to do to do any, any, anything at all. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I stick to actually what I'm telling my clients. It is not that I don't want to forecast. I think it is irrelevant to forecast right now and simply stick to something that will make money. Incidentally, I forgot to bring in climate into my 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 three sections because uh, at the end of november beginning of december we're going to have cop 28 that's the united nations and the g20 uh uh common announcement or rather their 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 goodbye statement reads grimly because come december all these countries read my lips are going to do precisely nothing on uh, on on the climate and that's going to be very bullish for climate-related companies because all this is going to get massively worse. Well, we're going to talk about so climate. Let- gloom, gloom and doom, okay, but I'm a very close observer of, uh, of climate policies and climate trends, mm. okay, and uh, what it is telling me, it reads straight out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
it looks really very bad. Well, we're going to talk about climate change later on in the programme uh, this morning. So that's coming up. Let me just ask you, James, about uh, the Fed, though. Do you agree it's going to be, if it is a pause, as everyone expects, and uh, as Andrew doesn't want to talk about, it's nevertheless going to be a hawkish pause, isn't it? The Fed is going to be very much on alert for uh, inflation creeping back on and up again. It's going to say it's very data dependent. It's going to say that it's still not satisfied with where inflation is. How, how are markets going to respond to that? Yeah, I think market is going to see that as the uh, nothing burger, like it has been seen it as for the past about three to four months. And hawkish pause has been in the circulation for about four months right now. So I don't really. Yeah, so I agree with Andrew. It's uh, basically irrelevant for the market, uh, and I just uh, think it's getting a little more a little more attention uh, for the past week because, like I said, the uh, generative AI. Uh, concept or narrative it's kind of fading right now mm-hmm. okay um let's switch to to europe european commission president ursula von der leyen announced yesterday that brussels is going to launch an anti-subsidy investigation into chinese electric vehicles that she says are distorting the eu market in her annual address to eu lawmakers she said global markets are now flooded with cheaper chinese electric cars and as we do not accept this from the inside we do not accept this from the outside i'm not quite sure what she means by that but she certainly said that she's going to announce an anti-subsidy investigation into electric vehicles coming from China. Now, in response, Wang Lutong, who is Beijing's top official for European affairs, he responded by saying that many EU members subsidise their electric vehicle industries. Um, Andrew, help us through um, this. Do you think it's true? Is uh, is Europe and maybe the rest of the world being flooded by these subsidised by subsidised Chinese um, electric vehicles, or is Europe just as bad? Uh, actually, it is strangely enough, the reaction of the Chinese side uh, was actually uh, very realistic. And he says, uh, so do you. In other words, they did not say, no, we don't subsidize. Mm-hmm. They say, yeah, we actually do subsidize, clearly, but so do you. So, you know, why point the finger at us? Uh, that is uh, incredibly common. And, of course, it goes back all the way. It has its roots, uh, so to speak, on uh, Trump's uh, tariffs uh, back nearly five or six years ago that uh, were specifically directed on areas where apparently there were a lot of uh, state subsidies involved. All countries subsidize. Look, the amount of money that the United States is spending on mm. anything that has to do with uh, with technology and climate-related technology, okay, with massive subsidies. I've forgotten now what was the initial budget. It was something like three trillion. I'm exaggerating, but it was a lot of money. So yes, countries do subsidize, and when it gets uh, uh, a little bit too competitive or a little bit uh, very much competitive, then uh, this will come out. Uh, it's unfortunate, but true. So Van der Leyen uh, says the truth, and of course, when she says she's going to have a commission examining this, is of course with the view of putting countervailing tariffs on uh, on Chinese inputs in order to cancel out the competitive advantage. We saw the same thing so, with solar panels, didn't we? They, the, the EU complained absolutely. that they were being flooded with subsidised solar panels and put tariffs on them. Yeah, yeah, very much. James, nothing. What, nothing. James, what do you think about this? I think the EU is getting a little anxious because uh, the the EV market is a huge market and uh, it's growing fast. But uh, the uh, market shares of European car makers for this EV market is kind of shrinking for the past two years. Uh, so. For uh, the, the entire globe, uh, 
the, 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 the car maker with the highest market share is, of course, Tesla. It's about 20% uh, throughout the uh, past uh, 12 quarters. Mm. And uh, the second one is uh, now BRD. But uh, it was, uh, it, no, right now, it, its market share is about 15%. Uh, for the entire globe, but uh, back in back in uh, Q3 of 2021, it was only nine percent. And back then, Volkswagen had about ten percent of market share, was ranked number three. But right now, Volkswagen only ranked uh, number three, but with a market share of seven uh, percent. But BBID is now having a fifteen percent of market share. So I think EU is getting kind of kind of anxious because uh, <clears throat> there is an interesting side story. BID likes to name its car series in the name of past Chinese dynasties. So the ones that they use to expand to the European market is extremely interesting because it was used in the dynasty of Yuan. Yuan is when uh, Genghis Khan conquered Europe. So that was <laughs> some that says something about the BRD's movement in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, does it matter that there is a difference in the way in which the EU and the US subsidizes its cars compared to maybe China, in that the EU subsidizes the purchasers. It, it gives tax exemptions, it gives them discounts to try and encourage them uh, to go and buy cars. Um, now, China does that as well. But what China also does is it directly subsidizes uh, the manufacturers. It gives them, in effect, state aid because, you know, some of them are, are state owned uh, enterprises. Is, or is that a difference without a meaning absolutely it is a difference without a meaning because it depends uh, how you swing the cat how in other words uh, you end up with cheaper cars in other words you end up with cheaper cars either because the producers uh, sell them cheaply because they have the subsidy or because the buyers buy them because uh, they are cheaper and they're cheaper because there is a subsidy so you know all that matters is is the is the list price and that is arrived in two different ways a, by giving subsidies to those that buy, or B, by giving subsidies to those that sell. Ta-da! Nobel Prize winner to Andrew Ferris from this incredibly insightful... How it determines price. James, does it make a difference, do you think? I mean, China does subsidise its companies directly, doesn't it? Which is, I suspect, what the EU is going to be focusing on. Yes, I think China has this policy to expand the EV market share of its entire uh, uh, Chinese uh, automakers. So, but I think BYD is the only one that is capable of doing so because it's making money, mm -hmm. uh, actual money. But if you were looking at other uh, new entry uh, entrants of this uh, EV market in China, you can see their uh, gross profit margin shrinking quarter by quarter and. Uh, uh, barely uh, any of them making money, uh, even on a gross margin level. So BYD achieved about 20% of gross margin last quarter. And I think it's, from a business perspective, it has incentive to go outside and expand its, uh, its manufacturing size and its uh, selling networks in other countries. I think BYD, with the support of the Chinese government, is capable of doing that. Mm. Okay. Now it's a big day tomorrow for economic data from China. We've got the uh, the, uh, the monthly 
economic activity data, which economists think is going to show that the recovery has run out of steam across the board in China. Retail sales forecast to slow to 2.5% from 2.6%. Industrial production also expected to slow to 3.7%. Um, and fixed status investments expected to fall down to 3.4% for the January to August period. Um, Andrew, do you think we've seen signs recently that maybe the Chinese economy is starting to pick up steam? Because the credit data was better than expected, wasn't it? The inflation data also showed that China has crept out of deflation, certainly on the, the consumer price side as well. So are you expecting maybe to see things improving or am I being too hopeful there? I'll take, I'll take the inflation, which is my favorite numbers. Yes, producer prices are still shrinking, but they're shrinking at a lower rate. And uh, the CPI sort of crept over the zero. But these are really tiny, tiny amounts. Mm. I mean, we, we, we are still talking. If somebody told me very quickly, Andrew, what's inflation like in China? I would say PPI is deflating and the CPI ain't going nowhere. Okay. So uh, that is, it is quite a pulse taking index. And therefore, I, you know, I don't want to, to jump into conclusions that they are doing better. The thing that still concerns me is, of course, we have had no announcements of what the famous 31 or 33, depends on whom you're reading, measures are going to involve and how much money is going to be on the table. And uh, uh, good God, I don't want to sound as if I'm giving advice to anybody, but uh, clearly China has got the fiscal capacity of expanding massively because it is a net lender overseas, so they don't need to worry, like Argentina, where they're going to borrow the money from, or if can they be able to pay it, because it will always be borrowed internally. Okay, And um, uh, my understanding is that the fiscal deficit reads at about 2.8 to 3%, which is tiny in comparison to the fiscal deficits of anybody else, including those, although they don't bear comparison of Greece, which is in excess of 200%, about 190, I think, if I'm not... Wrong. And of course, China, which is still is over 200 percent. Hello, 200 percent of GDP, although that also is a completely meaningless number. So I'm, I'm being a bad boy. I should never say that. <laughs> Divide by GDP and say this is a good or a bad thing. But anyway, so yes, the economy is still flat and it will be very nice if we could see on the table, show us the money. And it can be done. James, what are you expecting from this data? Uh, I think the data is getting better, a little better on all ends, and uh, uh, but not as good. Uh, the new uh, RMB loans and the total social financing data uh, is better than July, uh, especially for the household mid to long term loans that represents the demand for mortgages and basically reflects the demand for, for real estate properties in China. It was not in contraction like it was in July, but it's growing at a, a lower single digit, uh, not as much as the uh, the total uh, industrial loans, mid to long term loans that was going at a lower teens or or like the total RMB loan that was going at a higher single digit. So it's it's kind of improving. But I think foreign investors are more concerned about uh, the, uh, the the level of improvement on real estate sales. Uh, right now, we've seen the new policies on mortgages being implemented in first-tier cities, and uh, quite a few second-tier cities have lifted off their uh, their purchase ban. Uh, 
the data that we have uh, from the official sites are only one week old. So we can see uh, some cities are experiencing some pretty robust improvements on secondhand real estate sales. But for the third tier and fourth tier cities, we're all basically major uh, real estate developers in China that are exposed to, uh, we are still waiting to see more data. Okay. Uh, before I forget it, the numbers I mentioned, they were not, of course, fiscal deficits. They were ratios of uh, of national debt, government debt to GDP. Sorry, it was an exaggeration. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, finally, I want to just ask you both about something that's going on in the markets, and that's the PBOC is really squeezing the yuan bears at the moment. The cost for banks to borrow the yuan from each other in Hong Kong has surged this week, making it more expensive for traders to borrow the Chinese currency in the overseas market and sell it against the dollar. Three-month interbank high bore rose to 4.23% on Wednesday for the yuan. That's highest since 2018. One-month yuan high bore climbed to 4.7%. 79% and the overnight rate rose beyond 5% for the first time since April last year which really puts it uh, the borrowing costs comparable to the to the US dollar as a result the offshore yuan gained about 0.4% yesterday Andrew why, why is the the PBOC doing this it seems to be in some ways almost interfering too much and, and damaging the reputation of its overseas market in in the process well, to the extent to the extent that uh, this simply boils down to an increase in interest rates, I will tell you it is par for the course. The VBOC have been increasing interest rates, so increasing interest rates on that something that has to do with the with the renminbi, with the yuan, it it sort of makes sense. It isn't that whereas at home they were effectively cutting interest rates, okay, uh, and they have been cutting interest rates. In the case of VBOC, they have been increasing interest rates. So that looks that looks inconsistent, okay. But it also makes some crazy sense that the PPOC was getting very upset about the speed by which the UN was depreciating. Mm. So I know the policy now seems to be pointing to two different directions. At home, we're cutting interest rates on borrowing, but overseas we are increasing interest rates when it comes to borrow. The renminbi, but that makes some kind of crazy sense. Okay. I, hope, I hope this came out uh, a little bit less garbled than I thought. <laughs> no, it's, it sounded perfectly it sensible. Victory, but it makes some sense. Yeah. Okay. I mean, James, this is not speculation. It's very easy to explain, isn't it? The fact is U.S. Uh, yields on 10-year Treasury bonds have uh, the spreads reached a record high against Chinese 10-year uh, bonds. So it's not speculation. It's perfectly understandable, isn't it? But still, it's uh, the, like Andrew said, the yuan is devaluing at a, at a record speed, and it was reaching the offshore RMB reached about seven point three seven against the dollar. So that was the weakest in the history. So I think PBOC was right for to get anxious, and it got this. Uh, it announced this uh, China foreign exchange market self-regulatory framework meeting. And uh, this meeting was only uh, announced when the PBOC wants to give a, a, a notification or a direction to the uh, yuan investors in the market and telling them, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stop the yuan from devaluing so fast. It, it, it had this meeting last September, but again, it, it, when the PBOC want to intervene, uh, there will be some fast, immediate, and effective results but it won't last long mm -hmm. and uh, last September when the PBOC started to, to intervene you can see the the, the the offshore yuan bounced back a little bit but then 
come November and come October, that's when the yuan was weakest throughout the year. And uh, it's basically uh, hard for the PBOC to fight against a entire trend of yuan being devalued because of the very simple reason that you just mentioned, Peter. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts. Have a great day. That's James Wong, who is Chief Executive Officer at Cathasius Securities. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Lawrence Yu, who is Executive Director at Civic Exchange. Morning, Lawrence. Morning, Peter. Now, we've had two Fridays in a row here in Hong Kong of quite extreme weather. We had a, a super typhoon um, a couple of Fridays ago, which reached level 10. And then last Friday, we had a black rainstorm warning, the first in, a, in two years. I don't know what we're going to get tomorrow, but it's a, a bit worrying. But nevertheless, are, are we seeing now directly here in Hong Kong the impact of climate change? Yeah, actually, we suffered quite a lot in the past three weeks. Yeah, and then today we also experienced the red thunderstorm. And then actually, uh, I can give you some numbers to make you a more visualize what is the impact for Hong Kong. So that um, the insurance industry estimated that um, for the past three weeks, actually, it's cost us like Hong Kong dollar 3.1 billion payout um, to pay for like the insurance camp due to the heavy thunderstorm. It's far more than the typhoon mangroves already. Mm. In the future, we can expect it's more and more extreme and more and more frequent extreme weather event for Hong Kong. I suppose one thing we should be grateful for, despite the expense of this and the inconvenience, the cost on human lives has been minimal. I think only one person was killed in the floods. But if you look at what's going on elsewhere in Greece and in Libya, the toll is really awful, isn't it? Yeah, actually, um, the Hong Kong government already um, prepared um, the extreme weather since like last decade. You can see that at the old day, because your office in Shanghai, actually here, this kind of location is a really flooding hotspot, right? But now it's like, even though the typhoon number 10 and then the bad thunderstorm is, we still survive and our feet still keep dry. Mm -hmm. So is the government doing enough to prepare for more extreme weather? We have to assume, don't we, that we're going to see more of this. Maybe it will get worse. Is the government on top of it or do you think there's more that they need to do so that we can cope with this? Mm -hmm. So I think that actually the government already well planned for the future, but it's not at fast enough because like um, the one Dyson district actually they already plan few more um, drinkage um, work to improve the drinkage system in the one Dyson area. However, because in Hong Kong we leakage of labor and then a lot of ease and then the COVID make everything delayed so that um, therefore the government is still not fast enough to really respond to the climate change. Now, of course, we've got the policy address coming up soon. And as you do every year, you make recommendations uh, to the chief executive about things that they really ought to uh, focus on. I think uh, this year you've, you've concentrated um, on four particular um, areas. One of them is, is making Hong Kong um, a sort of sustainable uh, centre for green finance and, and for raising money to fight uh, sort of climate change. Tell us a little bit more about that and what you're recommending. 
Of course, actually, maybe I can give you some background. Hong Kong, we have a quite good regulatory and institutional framework because we have a quite strong uh, position. Uh, that makes us have a very strong position to be an ideal regional hub for financing mm-hmm. um, green project in the region. And then the advantage of Hong Kong is we also have the one country, two system policy. So that we are we make us really able to bridge in the international capital to China or bridging the technology from China to the world. So that we are at a very right position. So that um maybe I can share you two or three recommendations at first and then so um, actually, Hong Kong need to setting up a settled carbon emission pathway, and then also is like try to reinforce our sustainable and green bond market. And so, what, so what do you mean by that? A, a sort of a, a, a pathway. What do you, specifically do you mean by that? Okay, so because in the existing climate action plan, actually Hong Kong government already cover the power sector, building sector, and then also the road transport sector, but it only indicate a mid-term and long-term target, like right. 2035 and 2050 only. However, the business sector is everyone need to plan for their action every year so that without a very detailed target actually it's very hard for the business sector to support the hong kong government climate action so we need like five-year targets not not just sort of long-term ones we need a uh, shorter medium-term targets that uh, the businesses can specifically focus on of course, it will really help them to really convince with their internal stakeholders because we, when we conduct research, we find that a lot of decisions made by their C-sheet member. So that, um, that's why um, it is very important to have a near-term target to convince the, their internal and external stakeholders to support their action. And presumably that needs to be very transparent. It needs to be very clear what these targets are. We need to have information on how we're doing in actually reaching those targets as well. There's no point having a target and then forgetting about it. Of course. And then definitely the targets need to very transparent. And then also it's like able to make it to compare Apple to Apple to help the people understand what company did better and then what companies did mm. further reinforce their action. That's why um, we believe that if we have a very clear target, it will help investors, public, and everyone to really be able to benchmark the performance of our corporate. And are companies happy to cooperate with that and provide information about things they're specifically doing to meet those targets and whether or not they're on track to meet those targets? I think in Hong Kong, um, actually most of the listed companies are very keen to support um, the disclosure in Hong Kong because it can help them to to attract more investors. Mm. and the more money to throw into the company to support their action so that that already gradually built a very positive feedback loop in Hong Kong. Mm. Now we have a, a pretty good green bond market here already don't we in Hong Kong maybe it's, maybe it's one of the best in the world how, how would you assess what we've been doing so far? So that I feel I think that in Hong Kong actually we raise a lot of capital mm. 
unfortunately is like um we still need further to improve because so now we just foc really focus on the green bond but actually we still have a lot of opportunity for example is like how can we explore the transition market because they are not all the technology able to bring us to green but for the those kind of some great green between gray and green technology actually also able is a lower hanging foot to help us mm. to really reduce our emission immediately so that that will be a huge market for us to explore and then also really enable Hong Kong to further reinforce our market leader position in the region. So this is for companies that don't necessarily meet all the uh, ESG requirements, but nevertheless, they're making steps. And, and you're saying what we can do is, you know, help raise money to encourage them to improve and, and go further. Yeah. Okay. And, and what about the green bond market itself? W are there improvements that you would like to see made there that could help make it uh, either efficient or maybe better uh, performing? So I think that it will need a better defining the target user and also regulatory basis and also make a more clear expected outcome of like the green classification framework that can really help to improve our green power market. I know that HKMA already issued a consultation um, in the end of May um, to really like to really like to consult um, the market payer about the Hong Kong green taxonomy um, prototype on this particular area. Once uh, it make it happen, um, become a regulation, it will really help Hong Kong to signal the international payer that we already have a very good infrastructure here to help Hong Kong to attract more uh, people to come Hong Kong and raise capital here. Okay. Now, you've also made a series of recommendations which you've sort of bucketed together under the, the theme climate governance. Now, first of all, explain what do you mean by that? What do you mean by climate governance? Okay. For the climate governance, actually, is like to really... Um, identify the role and responsibility of the Hong Kong government in the climate action. Because if you can remember, like a um, few years ago, Carrie Lam um, announced uh, like a 240 billion budget to allocate in the next 15 to 20 years to support the decarbonization and adaptation to the climate change. It is a huge budget. Mm -hmm. But so far, no one really know how to spend it. Mm -hmm. So that I believe that if we can really well define the role and responsibility of the government, it will definitely help to explain to the public how to spend this massive amount of budget. So the, the, what you're saying is there really needs to be a, a proper legal framework uh, in place about how we're going to uh, tackle climate change, what sort of actions we're going to take, and the responsibility of the government within that as well. Yes, of course, because it is not just Hong Kong need to work on it. Actually, some city in mainland China already are aware of this importance like Beijing and some Shenzhen already um, start 
the procedure to legalize the central government 3060, which is 2030 for the carbon peak and then 2060 for the carbon neutrality target. And then they also set up different kind of KPI to mandate the government, define the government official role and responsibility. And then also like figure out a framework how to coordinate different um, kind of government department can really able to collaborate together towards to the target. Now we do have here targets for emission reductions in, in Hong Kong. Do you think those targets, because they're voluntary aren't they? I mean companies and the government itself does the best they can to meet them but do you think these should become legally binding targets? I think so because not just China is working on that. Like mm. the Britain already legalized that target like more I think five or six years ago. So that actually we should catch it up because there are a lot of advantages for us when we legalize our target. First is strengthen our financial support. Second is a better coordinated approach. Third is uh, make it more um, the sector can really cap the emission immediately. Mm. And then also can really streamline different kind of environmental requirement or standards in the future. But if, if we're going to do that, if we're going to make it legally binding, then we've also got to set up uh, ways of reporting and collecting data, seeing how both the government and, and companies are, are meeting these targets. And presumably you've got to set up also a, a government department that's actually going to be responsible for this and, and, and monitoring it all. Yeah, actually, if we have this kind of framework, that also can really help us to reinforce our green bond. Sorry, I bring it back to the green bond discussion but the data is very important for like the green bond market to really like avoid company to criticize by like greenwashing this can mm. really help the corporate to really more ambitious and or like um to be more confident to really like um a lot to raise capital in the market in the future and mm. then secondly also can we we um we enforce that confidence to make um, any business decision because what we observe in the market now is the market needs a really strong signal from the government that hey everyone we need to decarbonize mm. our city by 2050 this is the policy from the government and then we need your support and presumably, then, if this is legally binding, there's going to be penalties if government departments and, and industry doesn't meet those targets. Of course, but I, what I can see is the carrot is more significant than the stick. Right, that's what we hope anyway. Lawrence, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming in this morning. Thank you so much, Peter. That's Lawrence Yu, who is Executive Director at Civic Exchange. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.